Welcome to the Forensic Nutritionist Podcast. My name is Fiona Tuck. I'm a nutritional medicine practitioner and a qualified skin therapist for over 25 years. The Forensic Nutritionist Podcast takes an investigative approach into all things nutrition, gut health and skin, using qualified experts to bring you information that you can trust. We are all unique. The information presented herein is not intended to diagnose, to treat or cure disease. Please seek professional medical guidance prior to modifying any diet, exercise or lifestyle program. Let us begin. On the podcast today, we have Kim Faulkner-Hogg. Now, Kim is an advanced accredited practicing dietitian and she has more than 20 years experience with celiac disease and food intolerances. And she's gained working experience with the team at the allergy unit of the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. Kim completed her PhD in celiac disease and the gluten-free diet in 2004, and she has articles published in scientific journals, GP magazines, and has co-authored several booklets for use with patients. Dr. Kim continues to work at the allergy unit, and she does also have a private practice in Malabar. Today, we're going to be talking about all things celiac disease and gluten. Welcome, Kim. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, I think gluten is an area of, you know, a really popular area at the moment in the world of of wellness. But why do you have such a special interest in celiac disease? What, What made you want to study a PhD in it? Well, thank you, Fiona, for inviting me today to discuss this topic. Um, My special interest is the dominating question, how much gluten is too much gluten? And what is it really doing to those people with a celiac disease or an intolerance? So how did I get to that point? Was it began with the PhD project, which was offered to me in the early 1990s. We started looking at non-gluten food triggers for continuing symptoms in people with celiac disease Mm. who had been gluten-free for at least two years but their symptoms were still there. Interesting. We showed that several natural and added food chemicals could provoke a variety of symptoms and this was published in 1999. However, we also captured the years where the Australian gluten-free food labelling standard changed and became stricter. So for those of you who don't know, it used to allow wheat, starch and malt in a food labelled gluten-free. Really? And we don't anymore. Wow, I didn't know that. Wow. Yes, and a lot of that history has been lost. So we measured mistaken or intentional gluten intake ingestions, symptoms, blood antibodies, villus damage over a two-year period, moving away from that point when wheat starch came out of the diet. And some of these results are published in 1999 and the complete thesis is on my website if anybody is really interested (laughs) in reading it. (laughs) So that began my interest in what I term the gluten minutiae. So gluten in food is not equal and I spend quite a bit of time explaining this concept and teaching people to read a food label for gluten. I've made a point of not getting caught up in the current anxiety surrounding the mention of the Mm. word gluten I try very hard to paint a picture of what the current research actually is telling us about the average response 
to tiny amounts of gluten in those with celiac disease. I'm always talking about this bell curve. What can the literature tell us about the majority, not the most sensitive? I think we're all aware that the most sensitive person needs total avoidance. I treat each of my clients like they're the average person and I start with that story and move from there. Such an interesting topic. For those that don't know, can you explain exactly what gluten is? Yes. Um, now, how gluten is defined actually depends on one's connection to it. Right. So I'm going to give you a few yep. definitions if that's Great. okay. No, absolutely. Um, bakers, they'd identify with the Oxford Dictionary definition, which says gluten is a mixture of two proteins present in cereal grains, especially wheat, which is responsible for the elastic texture of dough. And gluten got its name from the root Latin word meaning glue because of that. Yep. So bakers desire this elastic protein because it can stretch around air bubbles and help to rise things and you know get a fluffy loaf of bread. However, the scientists, if we go you know, right back into your 1800s, they originally defined gluten as the alcohol-soluble portion of any grain protein. It's made up of two protein groups called a prolamin and a glutalin, in which themselves they can be further subdivided. So gluten is not a single protein as the name suggests. Mm. It's a complex group of proteins with different physical and chemical properties which vary in each of the different grains. And that's important because in the 1940s when it was found that it could damage the small intestine of people with celiac disease, all they knew then it was something that was in the gluten portion of the wheat grain. Right. So today, if you were to ask somebody with celiac disease what gluten is, and this has become the dominating definition of gluten, they would define gluten as the component in specific grains which triggers damage to the lining of the small intestine, resulting in malabsorption of nutrients and poor health. So science can now tell us that it's the nitrogen-rich chemistry in the gluten of wheat, rye, triticale and barley that can strongly stimulate the bowel damage. But the oat gluten chemistry is vastly different and it does this very poorly. And we may even talk about oats a bit later on. Mm. So going back to that scientific definition, the gluten that's in rice and corn or maize, it lacks this chemistry to cause the damage in the small bowel associated with celiac disease. From, so from a celiac perspective, their definition, rice and corn are gluten-free grains. Right, but you could say they do have gluten, but they don't have the reaction. That's right. right, but we don't we we don't yeah. talk about that no, anymore. No, because otherwise people will just get too confused. Exactly, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, I can yeah I can imagine we'll start a minefield of, of questions out yes. there. So when it comes to gluten and say celiac disease, are you able to talk us through the difference between say an allergy such as celiac and people that have an intolerance or, or a sensitivity? Is there actually a sensitivity to gluten without being diagnosed? So what we're looking at really are three categories yes. of reactions. You've got a true allergy, which is different to celiac yes. disease. So a true allergy, most people probably know it as nut or egg. Yep. Wheat is one of the weaker ones that's there. Right. But this is where the food protein triggers a reaction with the IgE antibody yep. and causes your mast cells to release a histamine. 
So common symptoms would be eczema, asthma, maybe vomiting, but breathing difficulties, and right. ultimately anaphylaxis, which is where the body shuts down and could lead to death. Now that is a risk of allergy that does not occur with celiac disease. Yep. So wheat allergy itself is quite rare. It's mostly in children, and most of them will grow out of it by adults. But another form of a wheat allergy in an adult is what we call wheat-dependent exercise-induced anaphylaxis, where when you eat wheat and you exercise at the same time, you can set off that same hives and breathing difficulties really? that could result in anaphylaxis. Um, and its age of onset is usually between 18 and 40, and then you kind of have it for life. But um, you know you have to individualise how you deal with those people's diets. And um, would that be something that's quite rare? No, it is. Yeah, it is yeah. rare, definitely. People with celiac disease. Now, this affects about one to three percent of the population, and it is not an allergy. So this is where it's an inflammatory autoimmune disease where gluten triggers a T cell response in the small intestine that leads to the damage, that is the broadening and the flattening of the villi, which in turn means you malabsorb your nutrients, yep. which is then has this consequence of some long-term medical and disease outcomes. Now this damage to the villi actually takes time. So one ingestion of gluten is not gonna wipe the gut totally clean of villi, which is what a lot of people I talk to these days have formed the wrong impression about. But poorly managed celiac disease over a lifetime may shorten someone's lifespan by a few years, but there's no imminent death risk from an ingestion of gluten, which is what allergy could yeah. carry. And that is often misunderstood. Now, both of those conditions aside then, if we're looking at a wheat or a gluten intolerance, it's not an allergy, it's not mediated through the T cells, and so we, we call it an intolerance. We don't actually have any tests for this mm. because amongst the people that are intolerant, there isn't a standard raised blood something that they can measure. Even inflammation is only there in a percentage of people, but not in everyone. So there's not a standard way to measure it at this point. And hence, that's leading to a lot of the confusion that we mm. have around it. Yeah, interesting. Traditionally, we've blamed the gluten section of the wheat as causing this, which is why we say it's a gluten intolerance. But research around the world is also looking at components of the grains known as fructans or lectins or even amylase trypsin inhibitors as being able to stimulate inflammation and or symptoms. So um, it's a much broader category. It was yep. first introduced in 1974, but really most of the research only started in 2005. So it's in its infancy. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense to me as well. You know, I think a lot of people that say they've got an intolerance because there is so much information about gluten, whether it be right or wrong that's out there, they immediately think it is the gluten when it, it could be all these these other things in there. And an intolerance is more about, well, how much can I yes. eat? Not total avoidance. And that message is often lost as well. Totally. I think um, this podcast is all, all about that. And I think a lot of people are very much, I can never have that again and all or nothing. And I think um, knowing what your tolerance level is something that's very important for people to be aware of. So thank you for um, pointing that out. I mean, people do claim to react to gluten and then 
can go and have symptoms and feel very uncomfortable and, and think that they may have celiac disease. But then when they're tested, they come back negative. Can you talk us through a little bit about how is one diagnosed with celiac disease and, and the testing process and what's involved? I mean, we hear that you have to be eating gluten for the, the test to be accurate. Can you walk us through that? Yes, fantastic. So about one to three percent of the population have celiac disease, but 11% have a wheat intolerance. So you are, odds are more likely to have an intolerance than celiac disease. However, you need to rule celiac disease out first because you can't just self-diagnose. No. If you have celiac disease, you really have to avoid gluten. If you have wheat intolerance, well, it's how much can I eat? So the way you deal with it is different. But once you've taken wheat from the diet, you can no longer test for celiac disease because the way you treat celiac disease is to take away the wheat and then everything should go back to normal. So the accuracy of the test largely depends on whether wheat's in the diet and a lot of people these days have already taken yes. it out. And can I just ask you, when you're saying they've taken wheat out from the diet, does it matter if they're eating other gluten? It totally depends on what it is. And it's a really good point, Fiona, because often, um, because they misunderstand small lots of gluten from large lots of gluten, um, I've had people where they've told the doctor, oh yes, it's not completely out of my diet, so the doctor does the test. Yes. But I specifically say to them, well, what were you eating? Oh, I had Cadbury's chocolate that had a may contain gluten. Right. Oh, I had oats a couple of times. Yes. Um, I had uh, an ice cream that had a wheat thickener in it. All of those things are barely there in gluten and it's not enough gluten to actually create a lot of response within the body and is not going to provoke disease in a fast period of time. Right. To, to do that, you need to be eating wheat bread. Right. So even when people say, well, what about a little bit of spout or a little yes. bit of barley? Well, in theory, yes, those ones would be good but most of the research has been looking at it from a wheat perspective. Right. So I try to encourage people to eat the wheat bread. Right, that's, that's really good to know actually because I think sometimes people are just told gluten and not specifically wheat. Um, so how long would they have to be eating, say, wheat prior to the test? Now the recommendation for how much and how long does vary around the world. So I thought, well, look, why don't we just talk about what we do in Australia? Yes. Celiac Australia, their advice is to eat four slices of wheat-based bread each day for at least six weeks right. before testing for blood and biopsy tests. So if a person can't eat that quantity, we then offer them a genetic test where we're looking at whether or not they carry a particular genetic group called HLA-DQ2 or HLA-DQ8. Um, this test doesn't diagnose celiac disease. Uh, its main role is to exclude celiac disease or make it highly unlikely, as the official figure is that 99.6% of people with celiac disease have one or both of those genetic markers. Right. So you just answered my next question, okay. Okay. <laughs> right. So if they're gene negative, then we can safely rule out celiac disease. But if they're gene positive, it does not mean they have yes. celiac disease. Only about 3% of people with those genes can go on to develop right. celiac disease. But could they maybe develop it later in life? Yes, can they, they could. Develop it at any time? Yes, yeah. you could. 
So if you've got the genetic test in families and you're positive, and especially if you have symptoms or a sibling has celiac disease, having a test for celiac disease every three to five years is a good thing to do, but you have to have wheat in your diet. Right. And some people who, if they've taken it out, they just can't get that quantity of wheat in their diet. And so we can't really diagnose celiac disease at this point if they can't eat the wheat. Right. There are people researching on ways to do that, but we don't have a test yet. Well, I guess it's not creating that autoimmune response. That's not exactly right. So, so they need to eat it to create that. Um, so with celiac disease, can what kind of age would it develop? Can, it, can you sort of, because I know people with celiac disease, for instance, that have had it, like you were saying, for they've had it for quite a long period of time and it wasn't until their sort of early 20s or even sometimes their 30s. I've even actually had clients that have been in their 40s, late 40s, that have only just been diagnosed with, with celiac disease. I had a 75-year-old. Did you really? So would that mean that they had developed it later in life or they suffered with symptoms and the symptoms got worse and that's when they finally found it out? We actually don't know when a specific person... Um, has developed it when we just diagnosed mm. them. But in the 80s and the 90s, uh, no, let me go back a little bit. We used to think that you were born with celiac disease and it wasn't diagnosed till you were 40. Right. But research in the 80s and the 90s looked at families. And so they had family members in one study eating wheat, no problem with their small bowel, so did not have celiac disease. Invited them back to a second study now they had celiac disease. So then they knew, okay, this person's developed it because we've got these measures that said they didn't have it X number of years ago. So that was the first evidence that came out to show that you could develop it at any age. Mm. So now if you have the genetics, um, you, can, you might be at risk, but you don't have to worry that you're going to get it because it's only 3% of yes. the people. But if a family member has it, you have an extra 10% risk on top of that that you may um, develop celiac disease. And what would be some of the symptoms and side effects of celiac disease and it going undiagnosed for a longer period of time? So what we have to think about is the symptoms you have at diagnosis could also be symptoms like if you weren't diagnosed for a very long time and you had really bad symptoms. If you were diagnosed early, then if you went untreated or decided not to go on a gluten-free diet, then they will just get worse yeah. by the time you then decide you're going to do something about it. So the short and the long term are all a part of the same mm. process of when you were diagnosed. We used to think unless you had this pot belly and loads of diarrhea and losing weight, it couldn't be celiac disease. But we now know that you can be overweight and constipated and have celiac disease. So there was a paper out there that said less than 50% of people being diagnosed today have the classic gastrointestinal symptoms of the pain, the cramping, the diarrhea right. and the floating stools. We've got about 20% who they classify as asymptomatic. So these people don't recognize symptoms before they take gluten from the diet. And then when they're gluten free, they go, oh, I didn't realize that that improved. Now that must've been because of gluten. They become normal in their routine. Mm. And more people are now presenting with what we've termed extra intestinal symptoms. So things like brain fog, headache, poor sleep, mood swings, depression, peripheral neuropathy, so tingling in the fingers and feet. Right. 
fatigue, weakness, muscle and joint pains, which are also things you can see in a food intolerant or a wheat intolerant person. But then there's things that can be associated conditions with celiac disease. So if someone can't eat enough gluten and we've not really been able to diagnose celiac disease, if they've got things like late menarche or early menopause, infertility in women, dental enamel defects, osteoporosis, hair loss, mouth ulcers, we, I might consider more strongly that I suspect celiac disease with them, especially if they present with dermatitis herpetiformis. And can you just explain what dermatitis herpetiformis is? Yeah. Because there will be a few skin people um, listening to this as well, and I, I think in skincare it can often go misdiagnosed as rosacea or, or something similar. So um, if you could just explain what, what that is as well, yeah. that would be amazing. So I'll call it DH because it's yep. a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> so DH is called celiac disease of the skin by some. It is rare and it's even rarer to not have celiac disease in association with the DH. So about 25% of people with DH have a normal villi but they show signs of inflammation. Um, about the other 70% will have either a subtotal villus atrophy or a total villus atrophy at their gut, even if they're not presenting with symptoms, because again, it's only about 10% of people with DH have typical celiac related symptoms. So if the DH is diagnosed first, definitely have a small bowel biopsy for celiac disease before the gluten gets taken from the diet. So DH is where this, um, you get the, um, a skin rash of itchy blisters on the elbows, knees and buttocks typically, but I've seen it on other mm. areas of the skin as well. It's diagnosed with a punch biopsy um, and then under immunofluorescence, it shows that there are IgA deposits in the skin. Unfortunately, if somebody has celiac disease, sometimes they skip that process and DH can sometimes be misclassified. And on the face though, it can occur, I've seen it. It can occur, mm. but it's not as common yep. on the face. It is actually more common in men too than women. And it tends to occur um, sort of later in life as well. The initial treatment is using sulfur drugs, but the sulfur drugs can't be a long-term treatment. So they try to wean you off that after two years and then it's the gluten-free diet that's in place. But it's a bit disheartening because it can take about two years on a gluten-free diet before the skin symptoms actually start wow. to settle. That's a long time, isn't it? Yeah. And a, um, something you, you mentioned earlier about um, the intestinal villi and the, the damage to that, um, which occurs with celiac disease and, and the autoimmune response, if somebody is, is wheat intolerant, which you mentioned earlier, did you say that there's no test to actually test for, for wheat intolerance? So that's just going on, on feedback on, on symptoms? So and there's no damage to the intestinal no. villi? People who have a wheat intolerance do not have the damaged villi. Yes. So they may or may not have inflammation. So inflammation is considered to be the first sign that will occur that something's happening at the level of the villi. But then stage two is the, the, the villi floor kind of drops out, the crypt drops out. Then stage three is you actually start to flatten and broaden. And there are various stages then, partial villus atrophy, 
subtotal villus atrophy and total villus atrophy. Which would affect absorption of nutrients. Yeah. Yep. So it's when those villi are actually damaged, you affect the absorption of the nutrients and then get these long-term medical problems associated with celiac disease. But because the villi themselves are not damaged in a wheat intolerance, you don't have the associated malabsorption or long-term problems associated with celiac disease. And it's more just the side effects and the symptoms. Yeah, yep. you're dealing with symptoms. With the damage to the intestinal villi, is it dependent on how damaged it is as to how it can repair? I mean, once it's really damaged, can it improve? So the research that I've got uh, have been involved in, we've shown that if you've been diagnosed, say, age 40 and above, there is less likelihood of what we call textbook normal villi yes. at the end. Um, there's Australian research out of Melbourne that's shown even after five years on a gluten-free diet, 85% um, have got recovered villi or those varying degrees of what we call normal, but 25% um, still don't. If you're diagnosed very young in your childhood um, and teens, you might have a much faster and a more complete response to the gluten-free diet. Mm. And those who have the most damage have the, the, the slowest recovery. Mm. That, makes, that makes sense, totally. I mean, gluten has been demonised in recent years in the, in the media. Um, many people claiming they are gluten intolerant. And I, I see it time and time again when I speak to clients that they self-diagnose and say that they are gluten intolerant. And... Um, you know, quite often it's, it's deemed for causing inflammation and, and weight gain and some people cut gluten out purely to try and lose, lose weight. Do you think that, you know, people are overreacting to all these, these trends or do you think there may be some kind of link there with gluten and, and inflammation? Um, there is certainly a lot out there um, about gluten. Um, Australia and America do have similar figures that suggest about 30% or a third of the population is cutting down or avoiding gluten, but only 4% for medical reasons that we discussed yeah, earlier. That's a big number. Yeah, which means you've got 26% doing yeah. their, their bit based on what you're suggesting. Maybe it's to lose weight or maybe it's for heart disease or maybe it's for skin or something else. Um, so I agree that the gluten-free message is propagated largely through the celebrities and social media rather than the conventional medical health channels. But uh, there is this um, university in America who've analysed this trend and they suggest that the emergence of the movement was boosted by the publication of two books, both written by medical doctors. So one of them was Wheat Valley by Dr. William Davis yes. and the other was Grain Brain by Dr. David Perlmutter. I think I've read both of them. Yeah. <laughs> so it's suggested that the gluten-free diet as a treatment prescribed by these doctors may give it more credence than some of the other mm. diets out there, which may have been what boosted it along. So what they say is showing that there is some research, but we don't have solid research at this point in time that's suggests that gluten's a problem for absolutely everybody and everybody you know, has to um, avoid it other than those medical conditions that we've discussed. So it's still in its infancy and there's no doubt that it's a real issue for some. But in my 25 years of experience, if someone tells me that they're sensitive to wheat, this actually tells me that they're sensitive to many components in food. Food is complex. 
And when you focus on removing gluten from the diet, you in fact change other components in the diet quite a lot too. Mm. If you focus on gluten, when you do get symptoms to what you thought was a gluten-free meal, you can actually go down the rabbit hole of feeling you must be so sensitive because it, it, there had to have just been gluten contamination. When in fact, there are other food components that can trigger symptoms too. So I'm concerned about the all or none approach. Mm. You know, I'd like to hear a bit more about reducing levels rather than total avoidance. And are some foods, you were mentioning wheat earlier, are some gluten-containing foods more likely to cause a reaction? Would it be more the, the wheat? So definitely the wheat, and it, and it is the, what we eat the most. Um, the biscuits and the pasta seem to be better tolerated than the breads. Mm. Bread has extra gluten that's added into right. it as well. There's a lot of, on spelt out there at the moment. Yeah. Now, when spelt first came on the market, we heard loads about it and everybody was finding spelt fantastic, mm. but you could only get spelt bread. Now we can get spelt bread, spelt pasta, spelt flour, spelt breakfast cereal, spelt biscuits. And so instead of just having a small amount of wheat being spelt once in a day when you had your bread, you can now have it five times a day mm. like you can mm. for all the other components of wheat. And I'm, I'm not hearing it as being as fantastic mm. as when it was only limited products that were available. And why would spelt be seen as less reactive? Is it just because it's got less gluten in? Um, it's seen as being less reactive because it says that it is a um, um, genetically modified grain. Yeah. So it's one of the original wheats that goes back, say, to, to ancient Egypt. And therefore, our, we can't prove this theory, but mm. the theory that's mm. out there is that we and our guts will adapt with our environment side by side as we go through life. And if we accelerate something by genetically modifying it and our guts haven't caught up with it, then we're going to react to right. it. It's one of the theories why we're reacting to the durum wheat and we're not reacting to the spelt wheat. Mm. But how do you prove something mm. like that? I, ha I have heard that, but yeah, it's, it's interesting though. So when it comes to, say, oats, that always seems to be a bit of a controversial one, as in are they gluten-free or, or not? I, I'm presuming somebody with celiac because there could be contamination, would need to avoid them. Um, which, which are there? Are, I mean, are, are oats gluten? Okay, um, oats is very controversial. Mm. Pretty much, if if science has basically said that um, something is gluten free from the perspective of someone with celiac yep. disease, then they can eat all those grains. As yep. you said, the rice and the corn. Don't be yep. afraid of them. Yes, you can go out and eat them. They don't stimulate gut damage. Oats, however, is controversial. Mm. You've got Europe, Canada and the United States all saying that people with celiac disease can eat what they term a gluten-free oat and we've got Australia saying that you can't. If someone does not have celiac disease, I don't have a problem mm. with them eating even regular oats. Gluten in oats is vastly different to what we've got in wheat. So. Oat tolerance is rare, but it is a reason for symptoms, villus atrophy, or inflammation in about five to eight percent of people with celiac disease. So most people with celiac disease tolerate the oat because the oat protein contains very little gluten compared to the wheat protein, and the oat gluten poorly activates small bowel damage because its chemistry is vastly different to the wheat gluten. 
To date, the research studies suggest that adults with celiac disease can consume about 50 to 70 grams of pure oats per day, and children about 25 grams of pure oats. There's no way, however, to predict which people mm. will be able to successfully consume them and which can't. Um, in Europe, Canada and the United States, they allow this consumption of what they term a gluten-free oat by people who have celiac disease and they remove these oats in individuals if they think recovery isn't proceeding well. So to be called a gluten-free oat, should I go into discussing what that is? Well, I was actually just going to ask you that. So that was my next question when you were talking about that because I've actually seen oats in health food stores called gluten-free oats. So yeah. that would be great. Yeah. yeah, because it is confusing to yeah. everybody. Um, so usually oats is grown as a rotational crop with wheat or barley in the off season. The term gluten-free oats used overseas. In Australia, we are not allowed to use that term. We use a variety of terms, predominantly wheat-free oats or uncontaminated oats or pure oats. Mm -hmm. And these are used to describe the oats considered suitable for those with celiac disease. So gluten-free oats are specifically produced so that they are grown from a pure oat seed on land that has not grown wheat, rye or barley for at least two years and the crop grown in the off season is a gluten-free grain. So this ensures that at harvest and storage, gluten-containing grains do not mix with the oats. Now the R5 ELISA test that we use to detect gluten in a product is designed to detect the gluten that's in wheat which can be detected good uh, well enough in the barley and the rye as well. But the chemical structure of oat avenin is too different to be detected by this test. So when the overseas companies say their oats are gluten free, they mean that this test did not detect any contamination of wheat, rye or barley grains amongst the oats. And so really we should call them contaminant free, yes. but their governing bodies allow them to be called gluten free. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'd seen them in the shop and I, I presume they were, you know, contamination free, yeah. but um, that's interesting. There is research, however, being done on another strain of oats, which is called a ceterin oat. And currently, it looks like it isn't stimulating damage in the people of celiac disease. So that's really exciting because that's what I would truly call a gluten free oat. Mm. But that's not the oat that's grown at this point mm. in time. Thank you for, for clarifying that. So. Are there other grains that are technically, I guess, classified as gluten-free, but could potentially have a similar response to gluten in the body? Um, no, only, only yep. this controversial um, oat grain, but all the others at this point in time with the level of our knowledge, we've got classified into ones that produce yep. damage and ones that don't. So quinoa, for instance, is a gluten-free and that would be okay. considered okay for people with celiac. That's interesting. So if somebody um, is cutting gluten out from the diet that maybe isn't a celiac, diagnosed celiac, are there any health risks? What would you say to somebody that was, was cutting gluten out? Okay. Wheat itself is a leading source of vegetable protein in human food. and It has a higher protein content than the other major gluten-free grains, the big cereals like corn and rice. So the lack of this wheat and gluten protein in itself may only be of concern to vegans who don't have dairy, eggs and animal meats contributing other large protein sources mm. to the diet, which most other people you know, aren't going to have a problem with getting their protein. Yeah. 
But there is a perception that, say, the gluten-free commercial food is healthier. Yeah. And that if we choose to eat a gluten-free pasta instead of a wheat pasta, it's somehow better. And in fact, many refined gluten-free substitute bread, pasta, cake, and biscuit products actually lack the nutrient profile of their wheat counterpart. Mm. Their first ingredient is often a starch, and this starch is devoid of protein and other nutrients, which in turn brings down your overall nutrition of this replacement product. It can give them a higher glycemic mm. index as well, and some research suggests that this flows on and can increase the risk of heart disease. And for those with diabetes, mm. they need to make better choices to stabilize their blood sugars. Um, another thing, if we compare the wheat to the gluten-free, is the wheat flours, breakfast cereals and breads have mandatory fortification of iron and B vitamins, which can provide up to about a third of the requirement of those particular um, products. So there is no mandatory fortification for the gluten-free counterpart and only a few companies voluntarily fortify those products. I also just want to talk about the, um, mm. the, the bread. I mean, the bread quality that's gl of gluten-free bread has increased over the years, which is fantastic because more people are now eating it. I mention this because as a nation, Australia is deficient in iodine. The government's made it mandatory to fortify all wheat and gluten-free yeasted breads with iodine with the assumption that we all eat two slices a day. So if people are not eating wheat or gluten-free bread, we need to get iodine mm. from other sources. So that and the B vitamin above the folic acid, especially if you're pregnant, both of those need to come in and they're in pre-pregnancy vitamins these days. Now a gluten-free diet can certainly be healthy and an increased consumption of good gluten-free fiber sources replacing refined products is what's recommended. Dietary fiber keeps the gut healthy, it provides prebiotics, it helps to decrease constipation, it can lower blood cholesterol and blood glucose levels, and therefore reduce the risk of developing things like your type 2 diabetes, bowel cancer and heart disease. So we can get lots of fiber and other nutrients from fresh fruits and vegetables, and gluten-free whole grains such as your brown and black rices, quinoa, buckwheat, sorghum, polenta, teff, legume flours, nuts and seeds, legumes and lentils themselves. So this whole category of food provides great prebiotics for the gut microbiome. I think that's a really great point to, to mention because I have seen myself people that have turned to gluten-free because they've read about it in the media as it being the, the latest thing to do or they've read that it's somehow it's it's bad and they think then that it must be bad for them and then have simply swapped over to highly processed what I call white food or cotton wool bread and then like gluten cookie, gluten free cookies which are you know very very refined and as you said quite often they're they're more refined and higher GI um, and I think it's important that just because you're swapping over to a gluten-free cookie for instance or, or the white bread that doesn't make it a healthier if sometimes it's an unhealthier yes. alternative gluten-free cheesels are not going to make you lose weight <laughs> yeah, exactly and they actually do advertise them now as, as gluten-free I think um, they do it can be used as a, a, a marketing thing so I think you can be gluten-free in a healthy way if you make the right choices but then you can also go gluten-free in an unhealthy way as well so if anyone is thinking about going gluten-free, what would your advice be? 
come and see you really I think would be <laughs> probably the very best advice there is there is often a lot to discuss first of all if you do have symptoms I just have to remind everybody to not self-diagnose mm. and have that screening test done for celiac disease before you take the gluten from your diet because it's very important to rule that out first but if there's no symptoms and you're making a lifestyle choice my first piece of advice is think about reducing the gluten don't totally avoid it you don't need to live like you have celiac disease and avoid soy sauce and salad dressings and these are what I mm. call you know sweating the small mm. stuff um, not all gluten is equal to bread and pasta if a manufacturer actually has to tell you on a food label that a refined ingredient came from wheat the amount of residual gluten left is tiny so a bowl of pasta or a sandwich periodically you know is okay make it fit your lifestyle people with celiac disease or a wheat intolerance will often tell me that they seem to react to smaller amounts of gluten when it's eaten accidentally the longer they have taken the gluten away from their diet this concerns me this phenomenon is not really talked about in research and I don't really know if there's any impact on people who avoid wheat for other reasons, but it's always something that is in the back of my mind when people decide to just totally avoid wheat or gluten, is what is that going to be when they might have some mm. wheat product down the track. Just on this topic, um, CSIRO published a paper that came out a couple of months ago that reported that a large amount of people who choose to reduce wheat or gluten also reduce dairy products. So yes. it's yeah, it's probably a good idea, even though our topic is not dairy, just to say, look, if you're doing that, be mindful of replacing that lost calcium mm. because most people just forget to do that. Or I think we'll buy something that they just presume is a non-dairy alternative that would have the same amount of calcium or, or nutrients in which it doesn't. Yes, all those vegan cheeses, they're Coconut starches yep. and they don't have yep. nu many nutrients and they don't have calcium in them. So my you know, strong point is don't avoid the oats. Mm. Try to take oats out of that category of, of being gluten-containing. It's vastly different to, to wheat. Um, and don't have to go and buy gluten-free oats. There's very little contamination even in a normal oat. Too much for celiac disease, but, but okay for everybody else. So focus on avoiding the refined wheat products, as Fiona and I were discussing earlier, which also reduce the sugar, the salt, the omega-6 fats, the additives. So if, if you are focusing on gluten, just remember that all those other things are also going to come out of your yes. diet. And that is going to contribute to why you've lost weight or why you've increased your measures now for um, heart disease or um, you know, you've improved what your risk factors may be for diabetes. Even though you may have focused on the gluten, the, the roll-on effect of, of taking those foods out is going to be much beyond just the fact that they contained the gluten. So equally, don't replace these refined wheat flour cracker breads and biscuits mm. with the refined gluten-free cracker bread and biscuit. Choose the whole grain cereal products and legumes and nuts and seeds. So think outside of the box of that sandwich for lunch. Try to experiment with black and brown rice, quinoa, teff, buckwheat, legumes and lentils with meat and vegetable in that poke bowl style that's become very popular. Um, enjoy fruit snacks and smoothies. Choose this type of reduced gluten diet over a gluten-free 
diet that's high in all of those refined products. Make the choices fit your lifestyle mm. and then you're more likely to stay with it. Absolutely fabulous advice. Dr. Kim Faulkner-Hogg, you are a wealth of information. We could talk to you forever and um, some really, really valuable advice. And I think something that stood out to me in particular, you know, really making that point of not sweating the small stuff because people can get really hung up on reading, I'm all about reading labels and ingredients, but if there may be just a, a trace in there and they're not celiac and they've decided to reduce gluten and then get, get very caught up on it, um, I think it's important to say to people not to get so caught up in the, you know, the small stuff. Oh, I, that's really where a lot of my bread and butter is. And, and you can really see the lights come on when you actually start to talk about this mm. inequality of gluten in products. Mm. So before we finish up, just quickly, can you tell us um, a little bit about introducing gluten in the diet to babies if they're predisposed or if a parent has celiac disease? Because I know there's some, some recent research about that. Yes, it has come out, Fiona. So over the last 20 years, what I've said on this topic has changed. You know, mm. it's in, it's out. Yes. It's only several months that you can put it in. But in 2016, one of Europeans, uh, Europe's big bodies put out some guidelines. We used to think that maybe we could prevent the development of celiac disease. There is no guideline now that can prevent the development of celiac disease. So that's something that people do need to take on board. The research seems to suggest that if you've got the genetics, there are yeah. even particular subgroups of genetics which may more strongly predispose you to celiac disease, and that's probably the biggest risk factor. They do suggest that when you introduce gluten to the baby's diet, you just do it like you do for every other child. There's now no special window of months that you have to try and make sure that they've eaten gluten by. But in saying that, they have suggested that you don't pile gluten in and have big amounts but in 2016 they didn't give you any feel for what that may be but just um, a few weeks ago another uh, study did come out and that's what they were addressing was the amount of gluten that might be in the diet and so they were looking at three groups one um, lot had on average around six grams of gluten in a day, another lot had around 11 grams of gluten in a day, and another around 18 grams of gluten in a day. Now keep in mind a slice of bread is mm. 2 to 2.5 grams. What kind of age would we be talking In this, this, these were children between the ages of one and two, so what right. we would say in their second year of life. And they followed them on you know, through childhood, and they felt that even independent of their genetic status, if they were in the lowest amount of gluten eaten on a daily basis, less celiac disease developed. Those that ate the large amounts of gluten, that was up to 18 grams in a day, more celiac disease developed. They didn't give you a guideline. You know, they always say more study needs to be done. But my conclusion would be, well, let's take this and say, this is in children who someone in the family has celiac disease, so gluten-free food is available. So let's maybe say, all right, one, two or three pieces of bread in a day is the equivalent um, amount of wheat in their diet and then pop in the gluten-free foods on top of that mm. so that they're having both but they're not overloading. Mm. On the flip to that, after, after saying that, to, to flip that then on, on parents perhaps that have just 
perhaps thought that gluten was, was a negative thing and decided to cut it out of a child's diet completely for no, for no reason and it does, celiac doesn't run in the family. Um, is there a potential that we know of, probably no studies, I would presume, if you then don't have wheat and gluten in a child's diet, could there then be a potential to de be more likely to develop, say, a, a wheat intolerance when they start to, to introduce it? We actually don't have any research no. that I'm aware of of wheat intolerance mm. development in children and following what may happen with the diets. They have looked at the whole allergy sign mm. and there is, at the moment, um, very much a movement that all of the different foods should be in a child's diet so that the body yes. sees all of the different food components and doesn't develop some avoidance strategy yes. to it. Yes. So that you, you, so even though that's talking about allergy, we kind of apply that to food in general. Mm. And I, I think that we just take this a, approach of have some, don't overdo it. And yeah, then we just have to see what happens yeah. as life goes on. And I guess in a way it comes down to a common sense approach really, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, a little bit of everything, not too much of, of any one thing tends to be the, the safer and, and healthier approach to go to rather than... With everything. Yeah, rather than cutting out those, those food groups and, unless you have a specific reason to, to do so. So thank you so much for talking to us today. You're welcome. Um, thank you for I'm sure me. after listening, there will be a lot of people out there that are either diagnosed celiac and want more advice or think they may have an intolerance and would like to speak to someone. You really are the specialist, I would say, in Australia in this area. How can people contact you or find out more about you? So I have a private practice, which I run at Malabar. Um, emailing me is quite often the best. So it's kim at glutenfreenutrition.com.au. So the website is in that same name, glutenfreenutrition.com or glutenfreenutrition.com.au. Fantastic. And if anyone does have a problem getting hold of you, they can always contact me and I can, I can put them in contact with you thank as you. well. So thank you, um, mine of information and a lot of valuable advice that I think you've, you've helped a lot of people with today. Thank you for the opportunity, it was fantastic.